0: Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. So we're going through the gospel, John, and we've made it to chapter 5. We actually, I think we skipped the last half of chapter 4 last week, but uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into chapter 5 and begin reading at verse 1 down through verse 29. So this is the Gospel according to John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done wrong or done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right. So Jesus was in Galilee and now he's going up to Jerusalem for a feast. And there were three major feasts that they had in Jerusalem on an annual basis. They had the Feast of Tabernacles, which was they were remembering their sojourn in the wilderness for 40 years. and They would actually camp out in tents. Then they had the Passover in which they celebrated their liberation from Egypt. And then you had the Feast of Pentecost or Weeks, which was an agricultural feast that was associated with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And these were really important trips. If you were a devout Jew, you would make these pilgrimages, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, to Jerusalem for these feasts because this is where the main worship of Yahweh took place. This is where the sacrifices took place. So if you're living outside of Jerusalem, you know you had the synagogue that you would go to week by week to get teaching. But to worship God, you had to go to that localized place. So it's not the same perspective we have where we can be out here in the park Right and worship God just as well as we could whether we were in the building on China Lake or wherever else. We're not told which feast it was but Jesus is up there for this feast and he's at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. Now interestingly enough, for hundreds of years, as I understand it, there was no archaeological evidence of this pool that's pointed to in John's Gospel because a church or a complex had been built over it. And it wasn't until the 20th century that they began to excavate in that area. And sure enough, they found a pool complex. And it's actually two pools, which makes sense. There's an upper pool and a lower pool. And you know he said that there were five colonnades, right? And so there's a partition between the two pools, and that's where the fifth colonnade would have been. the colonnade, by the way, it's just pillars with a roof, right? No walls. That's what we're talking about. And Jesus is in this area because people would gather there, believing that the waters had these. Sorry, my papers are flying everywhere. Believing these waters had these curative properties, and um, you'll actually, you might have noticed in my in my Bible here. It's the ESV. They skip verse four. Your Bible might have verse four, where they give a little explanation of why those waters had their healing properties. All right, but they. It's not in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts, so they take it out of the ESV. But it's, it's a pretty harmless verse, if you ask me. Anyway, Jesus is in this area by the sheep gate where they bring the sheep in that were going to be sacrificed. And he sees there a man who has been uh, paralyzed or crippled for 38 years. Now, you don't have to assume he's been there at the pools the whole time. It doesn't say that he's been sitting there camping out for 38 years. <laughs> All right. But he has been crippled for 38 years, and this man, in sophisticated theological terms, appears to be a bit of a ding dong. Now I'm not trying to be mean-spirited when I say that. In fact, I want to quote Raymond Brown here. I mentioned when I was preaching from John chapter 2 that I'm relying on his commentaries for a lot of the background information, and that's true, and it's going to be true the whole time I'm preaching through John. But he writes this with respect to the paralyzed man. If the paralytic's malady were not so tragic, uh oh, oh thank you. Is that for my hair? Or for okay, yeah, that's really the It's good. Um, <clears throat> if the paralytic's malady were not so tragic, one could almost be amused by the man's unimaginative approach to the curative waters. His crotchety grumbling about the whippersnappers who outrace him to the water betrays a chronic inability. To seize an opportunity, and you kinda of get that in Jesus' question to the guy when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? But that's, that's not where it stops, okay? So, he, he heals him, and the guy doesn't even give him a thank you, or like, can I get your name? Or, I mean, thank, you know, this is amazing, you know, Jesus walks off and he doesn't catch his name. Alright, not only that, but then, now, you, you think about that. If... <laughs> Most people, if they express or fail to express gratitude at something like that, that would be the end of the relationship, right? But Jesus, he goes after this guy, and he finds him in the temple there. The guy wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for him, and he finds him in the temple, and he gives him some counseling, and what does the guy do? He immediately turns around and reports Jesus to the authorities, okay? So he's a little obtuse. But Jesus loves him anyway. Praise God, because um, we're all up to sometimes and can be ding dongs. <laughs> but he has he has a really interesting conversation with the guy. Well, it's not much of it is recorded, but he says something very interesting. He says, "Go and sin no more, so that something worse may not happen to you." Now, generally speaking, it is very dangerous to associate physical suffering with sin, right? To think that if someone is suffering, whether they're sick or whether they're paralyzed or whatever, to think that that has to be the result of they've done wrong. And in fact, in John chapter 9, when they encounter a man born blind from birth, what the disciples assume, they assume somebody messed up. Like it was either this guy or his parents, but somebody messed up or he wouldn't be blind. And Jesus says, don't go there. That's not how it's that's not how it works. It's not like the wealthy and prosperous are God's favorites, okay? And uh, in connection with this, when I was studying this passage, it actually brought to mind a conversation I had years ago with somebody, and I happened to be sick at the time. And the guy talking to me told me, in no uncertain terms, that I was sick because God was judging me. All right. (laughs) And I, you know, I knew the Bible passages that I could go to. I mean, you can talk about Timothy, how Timothy had frequent ailments, and Paul uh, prescribes a little wine for him uh, to help him out. You have Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians. It was so sick, he was almost he almost died. And there's no suggestion that was because that he had sinned or done anything wrong. Uh, but I didn't want to argue with the guy. So I just said, well, you can just pray for me, Okay. And then without missing a beat, he looks at me and he goes, I'll pray for God's will to be done. <laughs> He's like, okay, let's pray for God's will to be done. Hallelujah. Three weeks later, guess who got sick? <laughs> okay, so I, now, just it's, it's not a good idea. Now, in, in fairness, there are instances in Scripture where, where sickness is associated with people doing wrong. And probably the most striking example, and I want to go there. Um, is in Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Let me read, beginning at verse 27 from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is instructing these Christians about the Lord's Supper, and this is what he writes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And here's the key passage, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, yeah, it is possible for us to, to, to go there but we're not the Apostle Paul and like I said it's it's not a good idea and I think um, when you think about something worse happening to you we should probably think along the spiritual plane of the spiritual corruption that sin can enact in our lives if we give it free reign so what do the authorities think about all this this is another interesting element in this story um, the authorities see this guy who's been healed and They are not impressed, (laughs) okay? Like, they see him, they have have no concern about this guy, no concern about the fact that he's been crippled for 38 years. They're not really interested that he's been miraculously healed. I mean, I think that that would be pretty awesome. They don't care. All they care about is a rule has been broken. (laughs) You You broke a rule, what are you doing? Okay, and um, it, it's if you want to if you want to be miserable. By the way, being legalistic is a great way to make yourself miserable. <laughs> and uh, the, these authorities, they they show us they ought to be happy about this. Okay, but they're but they're not. And the guy says, "Well, I'm breaking the rule because this guy or some guy told me to break it." And then they find uh, they find out it's Jesus eventually, and they want to have a little talk with him. And uh Jesus tells them that um, you know why why are you doing this on the Sabbath and he says that his father has been working until now and so is he. Now let's tease this apart a little bit. Um, when it comes to working on the Sabbath theologians even back then realized that you look at the six-day creation on the seventh day God rested, they knew that you couldn't really interpret that as meaning that God just wasn't doing anything anymore, right? They knew enough to know that if God wasn't sustaining the universe, it would drop out of existence. And they also knew that there were things that God did even on Saturday, the Sabbath. Um, Let me quote Raymond Brown again. In particular, as regards men, divine activity was visible in two ways. Men were born... And men die on the Sabbath. Since only God could give life and only God could deal with the fate of the dead in judgment. So they realized that, yeah, God, He's still doing things, like He might not be creating the universe anymore, but He's still doing things on the Sabbath. But they also realized that that was God's prerogative alone. God could do these things on the Sabbath. But it wasn't for man to do them. And when Jesus, first of all, he says, My Father, it wouldn't have been quite as controversial if he had said, Our Father is working, and so am I. But he says specifically, No, My Father. He's claiming a special relation to God here. And he's also doing and acting in ways that only God was supposed to do and act in. And they pick up on the implications immediately. Right? When you, look, it's not like they had to figure out, well what do you, what do you mean by that Jesus? Like they immediately figure out what he's saying and you can tell by their hostile response. They know what he's saying and they want to kill him. And this is actually in John's Gospel, it's the first time that hostility towards Jesus is this open and explicit. You kind of get a hint of it in the temple cleansing, but now it's just out in the open. They are, they are against him. Now, what does Jesus say in response? This is interesting. He's um he's you know, they want to cancel him. <laughs> they want to cancel Jesus. And what does he say after that? Well he just amplifies what he had already been telling him. He doesn't back off at all. He says, Hey, look, don't marvel at this that I'm working on the Sabbath and I'm healing people, because there's greater works than these than I can do. And then he claims the power to grant life and he says that judgment has been handed to him so he is this john is clearly trying to show us here the true divinity of the son of man it's it's very clear it's very apparent and let's look at this business of judgment judgment as it's described in john's gospel i want to turn to john chapter 3 beginning at verse 17 to hear what John has to say about condemnation and judgment. He says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19, and here's the key point. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So when we think about what we've done wrong and why we need to be redeemed, oftentimes we just think in terms of, I need to be redeemed, I need to be forgiven because I have done wrong. I have offended God. And John's going deeper here. He's saying, yeah, but you need to think about something. You need to think about, okay, but why? Why? Why have I done wrong? And listen to what he's saying. saying we have done wrong not be- because we are drawn to the darkness. That men prefer the light has come into the world and men actually prefer the darkness to the light. So this is a much, much deeper heart problem that's going on here. It's not just that I've done wrong, it's that my heart gravitates towards this. Mm-hmm. And I need somebody to fix that. I need somebody who can give me new life. Now this word life here is very important. And I think Bill talked about this before. In Greek there are two words for life. There's bios, which is just regular biological life. So you think about Trees growing, you think about human beings being born, they eat, they grow, they die, we're talking about biological existence. But in John's Gospel, when you see the word life, I think almost always, if not always, he's using the word Zoe. Alright, and that, and that refers to what you might call spiritual life. And something that's, that's really remarkable in John's Gospel, and I want us to, to key on this because I think it's really important, now, something that's not quite as surprising is you hear him say in verse 29, okay, there's going to be a day of reckoning. And on that day of reckoning, those who have done well, those who have believed in Jesus and listened to His voice, they are going to be resurrected to life. And those who have done wrong, who have rejected the light and rejected the Lord, they're going to be resurrected to judgment. Okay, and that, that's understandable. But look at what he says in verse 24. He says that those who believe on Him who has sent Him, they, He has. That's that's the word there. Has eternal life, not will have. Has eternal life. This is what the the note in the ESV Study Bible has to say about John five twenty four. Has eternal life is one of the most striking statements in John regarding the present possession of eternal life eternal life begins immediately in a partially realized but significant way when one believes in jesus those who believe can face the last judgment with confidence that when we're talking about eternal life we're talking about god's own divine life this is what John P. Meyer says in his book, The Marginal Jew. Now, this quote, he's talking about the story of Lazarus, which we'll get to in John chapter 11, but it pertains to what I'm speaking to right now. He says, Thus, the raising of Lazarus points forward graphically to the gift of divine life in all its stages. In Jesus' own resurrection, in the gift of divine life that the risen Jesus gives all believers right now, through the Spirit, And in the gift of divine life that Jesus will give believers definitively when he raises them up on the last day. Do you understand the significance of what's being offered to you here? That right here, right now, you can have God's own divine life and participate in that. Regardless of it, it, doesn't matter how successful or unsuccessful you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, how healthy you feel, how old you are, how young you are. Wherever you come from, whatever you've done, every single one of us has an opportunity. It's, it's equal opportunity for everybody. This is being offered on the table. Now, we need to understand something here. Suppose you take God up on His offer and say, I want to have this divine life in me. Does that mean you're never going to have a bad day? Well, uh, it, it, it hasn't worked that way for me, okay? Now, I haven't talked to everybody here. Maybe it's not the way. I mean, I, I had a rather bad day yesterday. I did some pretty stupid things, which is not uncommon. <laughs> um, but, no, it doesn't it does mean you're never going to have a bad day. It never means that you're not going to feel um, uh, sad or, or depressed or discouraged or any of that stuff, okay? You're, you're still going to have these normal fluctuations, in your life, and, and there's something else that's even more important here that I want to point to. Um, when we talk about Christ coming to offer us life, we need to understand that that offer, okay, that offer comes with the cross. And this is something in times past when I preached from John's Gospel, I've neglected to mention this, and I've seen how it's it sometimes misleads people, okay that Jesus did not say, take up your bed of roses and follow me, okay? He was he was very honest about this. He was very honest. He says, you want to come and follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. And that's part of the deal. That's part of getting this divine life and having it flow through our spiritual veins. And I think this is really important because this element of self-denial, all right, that's in the gospel, I feel like it's either completely ignored or it's amplified and exaggerated to the point to where you can't order a pizza without feeling guilty. Like, oh, look at me. I'm a deceived Christian because I got Starbucks. Um, and, and this is not healthy. Um, so, so to unpack this a little bit, let me talk about when I was working in youth ministry uh, many years ago. And uh, pray for Nathan Webb, by the way. <laughs> Anybody who works with teenagers needs prayer. I was working in youth ministry. The people that were the most... Useful to me. Okay? Uh, I had, I had volunteers that were helping me and I had students that were helping me. The ones that were the most useful were the ones who showed up. <laughs> okay? No, uh, interesting enough, it, it wasn't necessarily the most talented or the ones who knew the Bible the best or, or any of that stuff, but the ones I could depend on. They were there. Every Wednesday, they were there. Week after week, month after month, year after year. They were there, okay? They were the ones that were the most useful to me because they made that commitment. It wasn't always fun. It wasn't always exciting. There was a million other more exciting things they could have been doing on Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. But they made a commitment and they stuck to it. You see, and this is what we've got to understand as Christians, that if our Christianity doesn't cost us anything, it's not going to be worth anything. At least not to anybody else, okay? Now, you can say you're saved and sealed and your name is on every street in the New Jerusalem. And I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. But if you, if your Christianity is not costing you anything, what good is it going to be doing to anyone else? Amen. All right? And so we want to have this this, this life, but we need to understand this does not mean when we say that Jesus is offering you life, we're not saying Jesus is a self-help coach that is going to empower you to satisfy all your dreams and desires and ambitions. Okay? Jesus is not a self-help coach. He's the Lord. Amen. And what He's asking you to do is take your desires and your ambition and your dreams and put them on the altar. Amen. Yeah. That's what He's asking us to do because it's only insofar as we die to ourselves that we will live unto Him. Amen. And that is good news. Being addicted to yourself is miserable. It's miserable. And so I want to close by quoting from George MacDonald and then we'll pray. He says, we too must have life in ourselves. We too must, like the life himself, live. We can live in no way but that in which Jesus lived, in which life was made in him. The way is to give up our life. Till then we are not alive. Life is not made in us. The whole strife and labor and agony of the son with every man is to get him to die as he died. All preaching that aims not at this is a building with wood and hay and stubble. Mm. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. And this opportunity to gather here as Your church and to read from Your Word. Yes. And we pray that You will make us sensible today of Your presence, Lord. We pray that You will make us aware of Your steadfast love for us. And we want uh, You to be the shepherd, Lord, of Emmanuel Baptist Church. and, And be our shepherd and let us be Your sheep. And feed us, Lord, and give us new life. And we pray that You will make us faithful to You and to what You've called us to be so that You might be glorified here in our our congregation and here in the city of Ridgecrest and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. amen. Amen.